Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I either interview a guest or do a comprehensive account of an individual bird species, life history, evolution, and cultural significance. And in this episode, I'll be doing the latter. I'll be telling you everything you need to know about the morning dove. This is a really common species across North America, best known for their signature call. And before I dive into talking about this bird, um, thank you so much to Emily for suggesting that I do this episode um, on a post I made on Instagram asking for suggestions for uh, episodes I should do. I would have never known how many interesting facts about these birds there are if I didn't do this episode, read tons of research articles about them, and found out some really cool stuff. Like, did you know that morning doves and cows have something in common? keep listening to find out. And hopefully you listeners are hearing some of the nice ambiance in the background. I'm recording from First Landing State Park today in Virginia Beach, Virginia. This is a really cool little state park. Um, Basically, it's kind of like a patch of swampy woodlands um, that are centered uh, right around, you know, the Atlantic Ocean on one side, and then you got Back Bay on the other side. So kind of ocean and Chesapeake Bay within this freshwater swamp in the middle of it. It's really cool. There's like cypress trees rising up out of the water. It's a very important spot for a lot of bird species, um, especially migratory birds uh, like to stop here, um, you know, either on their way down to South America or they just chill here for the winter. So there's lots of kinglets around, lots of pine and yellow rumped warblers, um, and then of course tons of uh, woodpecker species too that love all these dead trees in the swamp. So Hopefully we'll hear some cool birds for you guys uh, while we talk about the morning dove. But I'd like to start off today's show with telling a Native American legend. Um, I haven't done these in a while um, because I've kind of been covering like European birds, the hoopoe, and uh, some other birds I couldn't find legends on. But um, I love Native American stories. Um, They show just how interconnected uh, the Native peoples were with the land. And they do an amazing job um, explaining bird behaviors. Um, this legend, uh, that I'm about to tell, um, comes from the Hacinias people, um, of what is today Texas. Interestingly, the word Texas actually comes from their language. Um, the Hacinias word Tejas means friend, and so it ended up being, uh, referred to Texas. And this legend today describes the morning dove, but also talks about a couple other bird species, too, and a plant to boot. 
So sit back and enjoy this cultural story called The Cottonwood Remembers. Every April, as winter fades and the warm spring winds blow life back into the fields and forests, the cottonwood tree wakes up. She spreads her arms wide to soak up the spring sun. White, delicate flowers form on her branches as the wind blows through the forest and she shakes her flowery crown, sending white flowers, looking like white feathers, floating down. Every year, as she watches the feather-like flowers drift in the spring breeze, she remembers a terrible murder a long time ago. In the beginning, no birds killed each other. The great spirit, who detested seeing death, created birds to eat grass and seed and leaf buds. Even the owl, who back in the beginning was a bird of the day and not the night, ate a strictly vegetarian diet. As he flew around with the other birds, munching on leaves, he noticed a beautiful white bird below him, gracefully swimming in the water. With her long, curved neck, the swan gazed at her reflection and admired it. The owl instantly fell in love. He flew over to a tree near the swan, and perching on a low branch, he called out, Marry me, lovely swan. The swan looked up with an air of arrogance and said, Come down in the water with me, and we shall talk about it. The owl knew he could not swim, but his emotions overtook him, and he swooped down from his branch, splashing clumsily in the water. He tried to paddle with his feet and swim like the swan did, but he did nothing but claw at the water and beat with his wings. As his mouth began to fill up with water, he realized his foolishness and flew back up to the branch, dripping and cursing. A laugh rang out from the reeds across the river. The loon had seen the owl struggle and was now beside himself with mirth. Ha ha, he continued to laugh, the oldest fools are the biggest fools. This enraged the owl, who could hear the laughing, but could not see the loon hidden in the reeds. Hoo hoo hoo, he called out, snapping his beak in rage. Now it so happened that on a nearby branch, on the same tree as the owl, were two morning doves talking. The morning doves were so immersed in their conversation, they had not noticed the owl's plight. At the moment the owl gave his questioning hoot, the husband dove had just turned to his mate and asked, Whom do you love? You, you, she eagerly replied. The owl heard this and thought the dove was talking to him. With lightning speed, he darted towards the female dove and struck her with his strong claws and sharp beak. As he tore at her, her feathers were caught in the breeze. The great spirit, who was walking in the woods near the tree, felt a brush on his cheek. He raised his hand and caught a fistful of floating feathers. What is this? he said. A bird has been killed. He looked up and saw the owl sitting with the pigeon in its claws. What happened, he demanded, but the owl would not answer. Instead, the loon's laugh rang out again. The great spirit was full of rage and decided to punish the owl. He made the owl blind in sunshine and only able to see at night when all other birds are away. Now the owl flies alone at night calling, hoo, hoo, but nobody answers. The loon was also punished for hiding and laughing, condemned to swim the rivers at night alone and laugh when the owl calls out. The cottonwood tree still remembers what happened that day and remembers the dead dove wife's feathers floating to the ground. She shakes her own downy flowers, and as the Native Americans watch them fall, they say to themselves, the spirit of the dove has come back to her husband. Now, that's kind of like a sad story, but also beautiful in its own way. Something I noticed about this, um, a lot of Native American legends seem to interpret bird calls as laughter um, uh, in our Kingfisher episode that happened also. But kind of a bigger theme of this is the story kind of captures how the morning doves are victims and prey items. As we'll see later on the show, 
a lot of critters like to eat these birds, humans included. So, as far as how the morning dove got its common name, morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, you know, like, you would mourn the death of someone, um, a lot of sources just state that its call sounds sad, and therefore, it's in mourning. Um, I did see reference to a Huron Native American legend uh, about doves being stopped when trying to accompany a woman to the land of the dead, and therefore, they've been in mourning ever since. Uh, and then the story that we just heard, too, you know, the husband dove is kind of mourning his uh, dead wife that the owl killed. So I don't know if just across a lot of cultures, the dove call has sounded sad and then there's been like legends about it. Uh, but uh, that's how it, it got its common name in, in English, at least, as the mourning dove. The Cherokee name for the morning dove is actually he who cries for acorns because its call sounds like the bird is calling the Cherokee word for acorn, gole, over and over again. You can kind of hear it with its song. Gole, go, go. It also goes by a lot of colloquial names. Um, I've seen them called turtle doves, rain doves, Carolina pigeons. John James Audubon referred to them as Carolina turtles. Uh, might get a mix-up with some reptilian species with that, though. The scientific name for the morning dove is Zeneda macroura. The genus name Zeneda actually has a pretty interesting origin. It was first coined in 1838 by French naturalist Charles Lucien. Um, he sweetly named it after his wife, Zeneda Laetitia Jules Bonaparte. That's right, she was actually the niece of the little Corsican himself, Napoleon Bonaparte. The morning dove species name, Macroura, is a combination of two Greek words, macro for large, and ura for tail, referencing the dove's long, tapered tail, which is a really good field marker of it, as we'll talk about a little bit later. I'm going to do something a little bit different in today's show. Um, I'm going to talk about the evolution of these birds at the top of the show. Usually I save it for the end because I figure only true bird nerds, you know, want to know about morning dove evolution. Maybe these crows want to know about it too. They're like con right by me. Um, but usually I only save it for the end of the show. Um, but I mean, morning doves really have an interesting evolutionary history and they have a very famous extinct relative. Um, so you'll definitely want to hear this. So here we go. Morning doves are part of the pigeon and dove order called Columbiformes. This is an order containing 313 species. So that's a really big amount of species. And because the pigeon family is so widespread across the world, contains so many species that kind of look pretty uh, similar, um, it really muddies the water when trying to figure out their phylogeny, their evolutionary history. Also, bird fossils in general are pretty rare, and pigeon fossils are particularly rare. They don't even pop up in the fossil record until just a few million years ago, so it makes it really hard to kind of figure out the ancient lineage of pigeons. Researching this section was particularly frustrating because, uh, like... I would read one paper, write down all its conclusions, you know, learn everything it said about pigeon evolution, and then read another paper from a few years later that was like, nah, all that's wrong. But 
after sorting through all the articles, um, I'm leaning heavily on this 2016 paper from BMC Evolutionary Biology. It seems like that is the most up-to-date one on dove evolution, so uh, that's, that's what I'll be using as a definitive source today. And what the most recent genomic and mitochondrial analysis of doves tells us is that they're sister group to the sand grouse and the mesite family of birds. Mesites and sand grouse are both ground-dwelling species of birds, so it kind of makes sense that they would be uh, related to pigeons. The columbiformis family first emerged during the Cretaceous period, and so, you know, this is when dinosaurs are still walking around, and they emerged on the supercontinent of Gondwana. Everyone has heard of Pangaea, you know, when all the continents are just smashed into one, but not a lot have heard about Gondwana. Basically, when Pangaea broke up, it formed two supercontinents. Laurasia was up north, and that contained North America, Europe, and Asia all smashed together. But Gondwana was to the south, and it's where South America, Africa, Australia, and India were all combined. I did find one paper from 2007 that stated that within Gondwana, Columbiformis specifically developed in the region that corresponds to the tropics of South and Middle America today. Like I said, uh, a lot of papers kind of contradict each other, so I don't know if that still holds water in light of more recent research. So the pigeon family first formed in the Cretaceous with dinosaurs running around. They survived that extinction event with the asteroid, and possibly they developed in, you know, what's modern day, the tropics of South America. Um, then the family kind of diverge into two different directions, um, two major clades. They're called the Indo-Pacific clade and the Holarctic clade. The Holarctic clade contains European and Asian species, such as the ubiquitous rock pigeon you see in every single city. And it also contains species like the Japanese wood pigeon. But it contains New World doves, too, uh, of which our morning dove is a member, and also the now extinct passenger pigeon was a member of. So we're mostly going to focus on the whole Arctic clade. However, the Indo-Pacific clade does have some pretty cool members, too, such as the ill-fated dodo. That's right. Did you know the dodo was a pigeon? Basically, it evolved around 18 to 36 million years ago. It split off from another flightless island bird called the solitaire, which is also extinct too. <laughs> I kind of went down a rabbit hole reading about these birds. They apparently evolved before the islands they historically resided on even formed. So that's kind of a mystery right there. I'll save that though. Um, let me know, you guys, if you want me to do an entire episode on dodo and solitaires. Anyway, back to the two big pigeon clades, the Indo-Pacific and the whole Arctic. Um, these two clades split some 24.7 million years ago during the late Oligocene. This was a period of global cooling um, that opened up a lot of unique niches for pigeon species. And this is the time when their diversity really exploded. The timing of that 24.7 million years ago is actually a pretty big deal in pigeon evolution. All the previous research suggested that pigeon evolution kind of did an early and slow pattern of development. It suggested that pigeons started to diversify as far back as 60 million years ago, and then just like slowly new species would emerge. There also used to be a lot of other kind of cool and crazy ideas, um, like that pigeons may have evolved in Antarctica. 
But like I said, this newest paper from 2016 kind of debunked a lot of those old theories. Rather than early and slow, pigeon evolution was relatively quick and explosive. I mean, they certainly are an old family. Like, you know, they evolved in the Cretaceous when dinosaurs still roamed. But either those ancient lineages died out or remained fairly undiversified. Then, as the Oligocene transitioned into the Miocene and the world cooled, grasslands replaced forests in many areas and rainforests retreated back to just a small confined area around the equator. Many new environments were created for pigeons to exploit and form new species. There were also some major geological changes during this time, such as South America separating from Antarctica and creating the Drake Passage, and the formation of the thousands of islands that make up Indonesia. One of the reasons why this diversification happened is because ancestral pigeons must have been what in ecology is called a super tramp species. Anyone with an appreciation for 70s music instantly just thought of the band Supertramp. Um, actually, the guy who coined this evolutionary phrase, Supertramp, Jared Diamond, the same guy who wrote the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, he was actually inspired by the band's name when he coined this term. In ecology, a Supertramp species is an animal whose dispersion strategy is to spread wide and far to many different habitats, none of which it is specifically specialized for. And we see this today in the rock pigeon, too. It's a pretty generalized species. It can go to whatever city, wherever in the world, and still be able to nest and eat and be fine. And the ancestor pigeon was probably a lot like that. It was just able to go wherever in the world and kind of adapt to a little niche and then over time formed a new species. Great. Now after talking about super tramp, uh, goodbye stranger is going to play in my head every time I see a pigeon. <laughs> But as far as how our morning doves evolved, um, they evolved uh, along with two other genuses of doves that are very closely related to their genus, Zenaida. Um, these two genuses are called Leptotilla and Geotrigon. Leptotilla contains 11 species of ground-feeding doves that reside in Mezzo and South America, such as the white-tipped dove and the gray-fronted dove. And the Leptotilla species, they really look very similar to morning doves, so the relationship is pretty obvious when you look at them. The Geotrigons, though, it's a little less obvious. They are a group known as quail doves, and they are specialists at dwelling amongst the dense vegetation in tropical forests in southern Mexico, the Caribbean islands, and Mezzo in South America. These three genuses first began to diverge from each other in the Miocene around 18 million years ago. A lot of the diversification within Zenaida um, has really happened pretty recently, though. Some of the two closest relatives to the morning dove are the ear dove of South America and the Galapagos dove. These separated about 4 million years ago. Ear doves look almost exactly like morning doves. Uh, if you look up pictures of them, they got the black spots on the wings and, and pretty much everything like morning doves do. The actual closest relative to the morning dove, though, is the Socorro dove. It separated from the morning dove as recently as 700,000 years ago. Unfortunately, this bird is now extinct in the wild. So, Socorro is an island off of the western coast of Mexico, and what happened to it is basically your typical island species story. Introduced rats and cats killed off the island population. 
But the Socorro Doves were actually really cool. Um, they had these oversized, tough feet that helped them to traverse the sharp lava glass of Socorro Island. I could not help but think that these are Hobbit Doves. Luckily, though, there are still captive populations of these doves. Um, but since they're so closely related to the morning dove, their genetic makeup is a little bit iffy. They are able to mate with morning doves, and so a lot of the captive population that's, you know, removed from the island of Socorro, they get exposed to wild or other captive morning doves and make hybrids. One source I saw said that there's fewer than 100 pure-blood Socorro doves left. Um, although there are plans to, you know, continue breeding them and eventually plan to reintroduce them back into the wild. So that's everything I could find about morning dove evolution. And now we know kind of where they came from. Uh, let's talk about where they are now, what they look like, what they like to eat, how they breed, all these fun facts about this bird. So, as I said in the beginning of the show, in North America, this bird is really common. Chances are, if you're in anywhere in North America, you probably have some strutting around your backyard right now. It can be found widespread throughout America, also much of Mexico year-round. In the summertime, it makes its way up into Canada, and in the winter, populations migrate down into Central America and even to the northern parts of South America. Its range is actually moving north in more recent decades. Uh, this is happening with a lot of bird species, likely due to both a warming climate and the abundance of bird feeders providing year-round food. There's five subspecies of morning doves. There's an eastern and western subspecies that are found in America, basically separated by the Rocky Mountains. There's also a Caribbean subspecies that occasionally pops up in the Florida Keys, but, you know, more often hangs out around, like, the Bahamas and Jamaica and those islands. Another subspecies is specific to Central America in areas like Costa Rica and Panama. And the final subspecies is found on the island of Clarion, which is actually right next door to Socorro Island, with that teetering on extinction Socorro dove. So you can kind of see just in action here how that Socorro dove first diverged from the morning dove. Uh, you know, kind of flew out to Socorro Island and 700,000 years ago kind of diverged into its own species. So who knows, maybe in the next another couple hundred of thousands of years, the Clarion Island morning dove subspecies will evolve into its own species. In addition to the subspecies, I also read there's a general trend among populations of morning doves that their color is darker the further east you are, and they're more pale to the west. They're also more brown in the south and become more gray in the north. Um, this makes sense when you think of camouflage. Brown doesn't blend into snow too well. And finally, morning doves in the tropics tend to have shorter wings than those up north. Um, that's because the tropical birds, you know, they just live in paradise year-round, while the northerly ones uh, need longer wings so that they can migrate south for the winter. As far as a description of the morning dove, it's got your classic pigeon body. It's pear-shaped, you know, it's got the head that bobs when it walks. It's very easily identifiable by its creamy gray color. It has these black spots on its wings, pink legs, and a black straight bill. It also has a little black patch on its neck below the eye. And it's very distinctive in flight. Uh, these birds are powerful flyers and are often observed performing acrobatic dives in the air. And finally... Uh... 
And finally, another dead giveaway that it's a... <laughs> and finally, another dead giveaway is the morning dove's long-pointed tail, from which it gets that Macroura species name. There are three look-alike doves, though, that can be found within its range. Uh, if you're in the southwest U.S., Mexico, or Central America, you might mix up the morning dove with the Inca dove or the white-winged dove. The Inca dove doesn't have the black spots on the wing like the morning dove does. Uh, the Inca dove has this like scale-like appearance to its feathers. It almost looks like it's got alligator skin. So it's, it's pretty distinctive. The white-winged dove does look really similar to the morning dove. It even has the same black spot below its eye. But the crucial difference is the white line of feathers running along the edge of the white-winged dove. Um, and that's how it gets its name. The white-winged dove is also an invasive species in Florida, where it was first introduced in the 1950s, so you might see it alongside the morning dove in Florida. Um, a quick side note on the white-winged dove, too. I one time got super excited in Elkins, West Virginia, when at my feeder I saw a dove with white in its wings, and I thought it was a white-winged dove that somehow had like gotten introduced or was way north of its range. I thought I was going to like become famous for you know publishing about this uh, rare migrant species, but it just ended up being a, a morning dove with partial albinism. And since I mentioned partial albinism, uh, it's actually pretty rare in this species. Uh, a lot of times you'll see, you know, partial albinism in a lot of different bird species. Um, but one paper I read uh, said that it's, it's fairly rare in this species and stated that out of more than 10,000 morning doves that were captured for a research project, only one had partial albinism. This was a male with a pale beak and little white dots all over his body. So, I don't know, that morning dove I saw in Elkins was actually a, a pretty rare species, too. I probably should have let someone know, like some wildlife researcher, because uh, in this same paper, it also advises any albinistic morning dove should be collected for further research. I did manage to snag a picture of it, though. Um, I can post it on Dirty Bird social media if anyone is interested. All right, enough about albinism. Let's talk about the last morning dove lookalike, the Eurasian collared dove. This is a dove native to Eurasia, um, but is a non-native introduced species. Uh, it was originally introduced into the Bahamas and is now spread to the U.S., so you will see it overlapping with the morning dove. The Eurasian collar dove, though, instead of having the black spots on the wing and cheek like the morning dove does, it has this little black ring on the back of its neck that gives it its common name. So while morning doves are really common, they're always worth a second look so that you make sure you're not actually looking at one of its dove relatives. And they're also worth a second look because when the light hits these birds at the right angle, they glow, literally. Many species of dove and pigeon have iridescent feathers and morning doves are no exception. The males especially have a bold iridescent patch on their neck that glows hues of blue, purple, and pink. This iridescence is created by an ultra-thin layer of keratin, only 335 nanometers thick, that surrounds barbels of the feather. Beneath this thin keratin layer is air and, melanos and melanosomes. Beneath this thin keratin layer is air and melanosomes. Melanosomes are the cellular organ that stores melanin and gives birds their black, brown, and tan hues. Based on the number of melanosomes underneath the keratin layer and the angle that the light hits it, the light refracts back uh, with a different array of dazzling colors. 
One study published by the journal Zoology in 2011 found that hydration of morning dove feathers causes the barbels to twist and expose more of the keratin layer, causing even brighter iridescent colors. So after a rainstorm when the sun is shining, it's probably a really good time to look at some morning doves through your binoculars and relish the full glory of their glowing necks. Another quick tangent, I, I always do these, um, but uh, when, you know, I was learning about this, about morning doves, I couldn't help but think about, you know, some of the stuff I've read about bird eyes. Um, I think I talk about this in my bird bobs episode, that bird eyes, you know, see differently than we do. We only see light within our narrow, like, Roy G. Bibb spectrum. Um, but some birds can see ultraviolet, uh, they can see infrared spectrums. So, um, I don't know what exactly morning dove eyes, you know, can see, but... Maybe, you know, they can see into ultraviolet and can see these iridescent colors like in a whole nother level. So what we see of these shiny neck um, on these birds is probably just a shadow of what they actually look like to each other. Um, the iridescent feathers on the neck are especially prominent in males, so that can be a way to tell the genders apart. Otherwise, male and female morning doves look pretty similar. The, the males are larger than the female, so when you see two together, the smaller one is probably the female. Now for the sounds that these birds make. Um, the cooing of the morning dove is super distinctive. Pretty much everybody knows it. Sometimes they are confused for owl calls. A lot of people love the sound of morning doves. Um, you know, it sounds very peaceful. While these coos may sound pleasant to us, if you're a dove, these coos are either war cries or cat calls. Like most songbirds, male morning doves sing their songs to both mark their territory and attract a female to mate. Females also will sing and give a similar coo to the male, but it's not as loud and is often less organized. Um, another tangent here, female birdsong is really understudied and right now is a very active area of research. Female songbirds may actually have a lot more functionality to their songs than previously thought. Um, so who knows, this like disorganized soft song that the female morning dove gives probably has its own subtle purpose that we just haven't figured out yet. Another really distinctive sound of these birds doesn't come from a song that they sing at all. It comes from the distinctive whistling sound that their wings give when they take off. And you've probably like surprise some morning doves before and or even like you know those uh pigeons that you see in the city um and heard them take off and their wings kind of make that wing whistling sound the sound is produced by air vibrating through the stiff flight feathers when doves take off and while some sound is almost always made by doves while flying it is particularly loud when they take off quickly, such as when they are scared by a potential predator. This is a pretty widespread phenomenon within the dove family uh, that uh, they all kind of do this sound when they take off. A study by S.W. Coleman in 2008 
showed that these wing whistle sounds are likely used to communicate danger not just to other doves, but also other bird species too. Coleman played sounds of morning dove wing whistles at a farm site in Austin, Texas. Uh, this farm site contained morning doves, northern cardinals, and house sparrows. Uh, when he played the wing beats, he noticed increased vigilance and startling behavior among all three species. Producing these sounds may come at a cost, though. A dissertation paper that looked at the wings of rock doves, you know, the pigeons you see in cities all over the world, um, found that changes in the feather structure that allow them to vibrate and produce sounds also negatively impacts the bird's aerodynamics. So this is actually a really cool evolutionary mechanism. Like, the doves have kind of selflessly evolved a mechanism that might potentially sacrifice their own lives uh, by not being able to escape from a predator fast enough. But it will sound the alarm and help protect its fellow doves. And then other bird species, you know, the northern cardinals, the house sparrows, kind of have noticed this and learned to recognize morning dove wing beats as a sign of danger. And a big reason of why they need to be so cautious of predators is that these birds spend a lot of time feeding on the ground. They eat almost entirely seeds, everything from wild grass seed, weed seeds, herb seeds, and also agricultural seeds. And these seeds have to be, you know, they don't go through the leaf litter the way like a towhee would. Um, you know, they're not flipping over twigs and stuff, searching the ground. Like, they're just pecking, picking up seeds that are just laying there out in the open. And while they eat seeds that are out in the open, they don't select their food um, based on sight, actually. They select it based on taste. Experiments have shown that doves don't care if the seed is dyed like any kind of wacky colors, like they've taken grains and dyed it red, blue, purple, you know, and the doves don't care. They'll still like pick it up in their beaks. Um, as long as it tastes good, they'll eat it. So they actually will sample a wide variety of both natural and introduced plant seeds. Um, and, you know, they'll sample it in their mouth, uh, maybe eat it, um, and then continue eating more of it um, if they like what they taste. While they eat, like, a really wide variety of stuff, there's definitely things that they don't like. Legumes and peas are pretty much off the menu for morning doves. Um, they will only eat safflower seeds if they're under hunger pressure. They don't uh, select them if they can help it. At bird feeders, you'll notice that morning doves readily gobble up millet and sorghum um, while mostly leaving peanuts alone. Their feet are adapted to ground feeding. Um, you won't see them perched on your feeder the way like a cardinal or a sparrow will. Rather, they will either feed off spilled seed under the feeder or perch on a platform feeder if you have one of those. They do eat some other stuff too. Sometimes they'll eat berries, they'll occasionally eat snails, like the occasional insect, but mostly it is straight seed for them. They also eat grit, basically like dirt or small rocks. Um, this helps them to grind up and digest their food. Um, remember this grit though, uh, it, it'll be important later when I talk about kind of uh, some threats to these birds. Um, like a lot of seed and ground feeding birds, they have a crop um, that they use to uh, store food. Um, this is a, a really good adaptation because, you know, you 
uh, spend a lot of time on the ground feeding, you don't want to also be digesting at the same time because you need all the energy you can if a predator comes up on you. You got to fly away. So they'll store all the food in their crop and then they'll fly off, perch in a tree somewhere where they're safe, and then they'll, uh, you know, empty the food from their crop into their digestive system and digest it, sit back, take a nap, you know. Um, they can store thousands of tiny grass seeds in this crop, so it's a pretty remarkable organ. Kind of like a little built-in backpack. And they really spend a lot of time eating. They eat 12 to 20% of their body weight a day. They don't just eat a lot, but they also drink a lot too. Since they're strictly a grain eater, um, they get little or no water from their food, and they must seek out freestanding water to drink. One study estimated that they drink 3% of their body weight in water a day. They also have like a bit of a superpower to help them drink all this water. If you've ever watched birds at a bird bath, you'll notice a lot of them usually drink by kind of dunking their bill, and then they throw back their head to guzzle down the water, kind of like they're chugging a beer. Um, this is a little bit of a slow and wasteful process, though, so instead doves, along with other birds like finches, are able to slurp water using their beak like a straw. Oh, I hear some brown-headed nuthatches. Yeah, I love those guys doggy squeaky toy all right so that's the feeding of morning doves um let's go on and talk about their breeding um this is a pretty cool topic because doves and culture are just uh you know associated with love a lot um we'll find some of that does hold up but uh some of it's not really so true like a lot of birds they have an elaborate courtship ritual the male will perform display flights for the female. He'll fly with these noisy wing beats. He'll glide in circles. They'll do a spiraling flight pattern that is pretty atypical of uh, most songbirds and actually looks more similar to a predatory bird like a falcon. After doing this display, the male will then land on the ground uh, near the female and puff out his chest and approach her. You know, feeling pretty cocky after that uh, falcon-like flight. Um, he then will bow to her and coo seductively. If the female likes what she sees, they'll establish a pair bond, and they'll preen each other to help maintain this bond. Once they've established, you know, I like you, you like me, let's raise a family, uh, they'll go about the work of building a nest. The male will gather materials for this nest, and the female builds it. Um, I saw some mention that the male will kind of go around to different nest sites, and then the a female will kind of pick the uh, the nest site that she likes. Uh, I've seen that uh, with a lot of other bird species that I've talked about in the show, too. They're not very picky about where they make their nests. It could be in a tree, uh, could be in some branches and shrubs, um, or even around human habitation in places like house eaves or gutters. When you look at their nest, um, <laughs> they're pretty lazy with their nest construction compared to those carefully woven cups that other birds do. The morning dove nest is mostly just a stack of sticks and it can be built fully in a day or two. There's a good reason why they rush their nest construction though. These birds got babies to make. They can't waste time, you know, building the perfect house. 
The foreplay to lead up to this baby making is often done in and around the nest site. Leading up to mating, pairs will give these excited nest calls. They'll preen each other. Um, they especially seem to preen each other inside of the wing before mating. That's kind of like I don't <laughs> sensitive area for them. I, I, I don't know. Um, this will all lead up to a courtship feeding where the female will place her bill inside the males like a baby bird and presumably receive a regurgitated meal. After being fed, she then allows the male to mount her and mate with her. And after that, it doesn't take long for the female to be ready to lay some eggs. She almost always lays two eggs, very rarely three. The male and female split the duties of egg incubation. And actually, really, they split almost all the duties of raising the young fairly equally. So, morning dove dads are pretty devoted fathers. I even saw one case where, in laboratory conditions, a female was removed from the nest and the male continued to raise the two chicks on his own until adulthood. But another experiment looking at nests in the wild found that single morning dove parents consistently failed if the eggs were unhatched, you know, when the other mate died or was removed. If there were chicks in the nest, though, the single parent had a fighting chance of raising them to adulthood, but still a lower success rate compared to two-parent nests. This study didn't find a difference in single moms versus single dads, so it seems like both male and female morning doves are equally proficient as parents. A lot of chickadees right now, right above me. One of the big factors in the single parent's nests, uh, why their eggs fail, is because male and females normally take regular shifts on incubating the eggs. You know, one parent will sit there for a couple hours while the other one's out feeding and drinking and, you know, doing what he needs to do. And then he'll come back and, all right, honey, I'm taking over now on the eggs. And then he'll sit on them while the female goes and flies off and does her business. So, I mean, if it's just one parent, they inevitably have to get off the nest, and then the eggs might get too cold and die, or a predator might come and eat them. But as long as there's two parents there to incubate and keep the eggs nice and safe, after two weeks, the eggs will hatch and little squabs emerge. That's right, pigeon nestlings are called squabs. Squabs! That's so much fun to say. The parents don't have brooding patches to keep their young warm. Uh, we've talked about this in a lot of songbird species. Uh, usually the female, um, sometimes the male too, will have a little bare area of skin that they can expose and uh, you know transfer heat directly to the young. And while morning doves don't have this special little heating patch, they do have another sort of disgusting adaptation to keep their nestlings warm and well-fed. The dove family, along with some species of flamingo and penguins, have the ability to produce milk. I know what you're thinking. No, doves do not have nipples. <laughs> but um, the substance they exclusively feed their nestlings for the first few days of their life is called crop milk. Um, and it's produced by both the mother and the father. I talked about the crop of morning doves earlier. It's a special pouch in their neck that they use as a holding place for food items. And they also can use it to produce milk. 
And you'd think, you know, it's not produced from a nipple. It's got to be totally different from mammalian milk, you know. Like, this comes from, like, basically their throat. It's got to be totally different. Um, but when you look at, like, the chemicals of crop milk versus mammalian milk, they're surprisingly similar. In both mammals and in doves, the chemical prolactin is really important for stimulating milk production. Prolactin comes from the hypothalamus in uh, mammals and, you know, signals the teats to begin producing that milk. Um, and it does the same thing in doves, too. They start producing prolactin when they have babies, and it stimulates the crop to undergo some changes to produce crop milk. Both mammalian and dove milk contains IgA antibodies. Um, these are really important for preventing infections in babies, um, especially respiratory infections. There are some major differences, though. First of all, crop milk looks disgusting. Um, it's yellow and globular. It looks like sour cream that's gone bad. Also, crop milk isn't formed by a specialized gland like in mammals. Um, rather, it's just kind of the sloughing off of a skin layer of the crop. But crop milk is actually more densely packed with proteins than mammalian milk is. And this allows the squabs to grow crazy fast. Compared to other bird nestlings, just being fed like regurgitated seeds or bugs, squabs develop much more rapidly. This is the reason why doves are such prolific breeders um, and why they can keep up with such high mortality rates and basically everything eating them is they are just spitting out babies because they're feeding them milk. There's only so much of this crop milk to go around though and that's why morning doves only lay one to two eggs at a time. Um, in experiments where a third egg is introduced into morning dove nests, the third nestling is consistently malnourished. The morning doves just simply can't produce enough crop milk for three young. The squabs are fed exclusively this crop milk for the first three days of life. And then the parents then begin to transition to milk mixed with like soft seeds. Um, <laughs> I was laughing reading this because it's almost exactly like what we do with baby food, you know, just formula for like the first couple months and then let's do some milk mixed with some like soft Cheerios or something, you know, um, and then gradually just work up to whatever you're eating. Once the squabs learn how to eat their like, you know, soft little baby food, the parents begin to feed them more and more of hard seeds and then eventually go to just straight up, you know, what the parents are eating too. There's some data suggesting that the sex of chicks varies with the season, with more female chicks uh, being produced early on in the breeding season and then later on in the breeding season, it's predominantly males that hatch. Just kind of a weird little fact. And especially in these first couple days, the young squabs still can't, you know, thermoregulate themselves. So they rely on their parents incubating them still. Like I said, the parents take pretty even turns. Um, the male mostly does day shifts while the female usually does night shifts. I found one kind of cruel study uh, that took baby morning doves at different ages and basically saw how long it took them to freeze to death um, when not provided incubation. It showed that the little squabs could start thermoregulating for themselves at around day six. However, this isn't the date when morning dove parents stop incubating. Um, even past day six, they continue to incubate their young, but they will start to spend more and more time um, off the nest.
And after only two weeks, these squabs have fledged and they're ready to leave the nest. This is incredibly fast. And because it's so fast, morning doves are able to have up to six broods in the southern part of their range. That's just incredible. In fact, they develop so fast that juveniles born early in the spring may even be able to start breeding that same summer. This is the first I've ever stumbled across with a bird species, you know, being born in the spring and being able to start breeding in that summer. Most species need like at least a full year to fully mature before they can breed. Uh, just to demonstrate just how fertile these birds are, uh, I read a study conducted in Minnesota that showed for every one acre of land that contained a mixture of conifer and deciduous tree groves um, uh, bordered by open fields, that's like, you know, your typical farmland or suburban backyard, um, 38 to 65 morning doves are produced each breeding season. So that's like an average of 50 doves each year, each acre. That's incredible. Maybe instead of saying screwing like rabbits, we should all start saying screwing like morning doves. So while they're super fertile, they love making babies, um, <laughs> they do have a little bit of a downside as parents. Because they have these multiple broods, they can afford to be a little selfish when it comes to taking care of themselves versus their chicks. We already know that they don't spend a lot of time and resources on building their nests. Um, they basically just link and log a couple of sticks together. The fact that they can just easily fly off, build a new nest, lay two more eggs, uh, means that they don't have a lot invested in their nest or their chicks. So if that nest is threatened by a predator or an overly curious human, um, they will simply just abandon the nest, chicks and all, and go start somewhere else. It makes them seem like shitty parents, but I mean, it's just a reproductive strategy for these birds. And obviously it works out pretty well. As long as their nest site isn't threatened, when they do those multiple broods, they usually will just continue using the same nest over and over again to have, you know, five, six broods in one summer. The newly fledged birds will disperse to other areas to nest. They do not make nests in the same areas that they were born. However, in whatever area they do end up picking to breed, they will return to it year after year. The fledglings don't leave too quickly, though. For a few days after leaving the nest, parents will still feed them. Primarily the male actually does this. Morning dove dads are either altruistic or really bad at identifying their own kids, though, because studies have shown a pretty high amount of surrogate feedings, meaning that parents are feeding young that are not even their own. In one study, of all feedings observed, 6.5% of them were surrogate feeds. Apparently this is pretty common with other pigeon species too, so it could just be a pigeon thing. They're all just really gregarious and help each other out. Maybe why they've been so successful. But in morning doves at least, this only occurs during a narrow time frame that fledglings have left the nest but are still not able to feed for themselves. While still on the nest, morning dove parents, particularly the dads, are pretty aggressive if any other dove parents come around or any other fledglings come over and, and you know, try to get a free meal. Ooh, nice woodpecker drum there. By day 21, fledglings are able to feed for themselves, and the parents know this. They will stop all supplemental feedings 
after the birds hit this age mark um, and force the young to provide for themselves. One big question I know you're probably thinking, are morning doves really the monogamous, mate-for-life lovebirds that, you know, they're sometimes portrayed as? During the breeding season, yes, they are fairly monogamous, um, and the same couple will stick together as they raise their multiple broods. I was only able to find one study on extra pair paternity in morning doves. Uh, you're probably familiar with extra pair paternity if you've listened to any of my other episodes. Any of my other episodes. It's when either a male or a female bird sneaks off to get a little side action on, um, and one parent ends up raising young that don't entirely belong to them. The one study I could find um, was in a population of captive morning doves. Uh, it found that 4 out of 43 chicks were bastard squabs. That's not a very large number. That's only about 9%. Um, it lines up with most other songbird species who, you know, are mostly monogamous, but, you know, they, they will sneak off here and there. So morning doves are pretty much just like any other songbird species when it comes to monogamy. After the breeding season is over, couples mostly go on their own separate ways. But doves are, you know, a flock species. They like to hang out together. So the pair may still hang out together in a flock with some other doves. They might spend the winter together also. And like I said, while fledglings don't make a nest in, you know, the same area that they were born, whatever area they do end up going to to make a nest, they'll return to year after year. So two mates, you know, they're going back to the same area year after year. Chances are they'll probably cross paths again and, you know, maybe year after year raise young together. One thing to remember, though, is that mortality is extremely high in these birds. So, I mean, chances are that, you know, your mate isn't going to survive the winter. Come next spring, you know, you're going to have to find a new bird because whoever you had babies with last year got eaten by a hawk. Now let's talk about some of the amazing adaptations of these birds that have helped them be so successful throughout the Americas. First off, the feather molting of these birds is really cool. You might be fooled into thinking their plumage stays the same all year round, but they actually do have slightly brighter breeding plumage in the spring and summertime, especially the males who sport brighter shades of olive green and brown on their neck and head. How they form this brighter breeding plumage is pretty unique. They don't just simply molt before spring and put on brighter feathers. Morning doves actually only molt once a year in the fall, after the breeding season. And when they molt and put on these new feathers, they're actually really dull, like this like light brown color. Kind of helps them, you know, blend in with all the dead vegetation in the wintertime. But that hard weather in the wintertime, all the wind and cold and rain and everything, it does a lot of wear and tear on the feathers and causes erosion of the feather tips that actually expose the brighter breeding plumage underneath. And when it comes time to replace their flight feathers, morning doves take a long and slow approach. Some birds, like cardinals are one of them, I think I remember, they kind of just like replace their feathers as fast as possible. You know, they'll replace their flight feathers like in just a day or two. But that means that, you know, for that day or two, they can't fly and they're really vulnerable. But morning doves, this is a ground feeding bird. Like they are just going to get gobbled up if they try a strategy like that. They actually take more than six months to replace their primary wing feathers. This ensures that they can always fly away fast and escape predators. 
Uh, one thing I didn't find any like studies on, but just kind of anecdotal stuff is morning doves lose their feathers really easily. Audubon mentions this and like kind of his descriptions of morning doves. I've noticed this a lot, like, like around my bird feeder, there's just always morning dove feathers. You know, every time they take off, they lose some feathers. Um, and just kind of my spitballing, and this is probably a bit of a uh, evolutionary thing too, almost like lizards where they'll drop their tail. These birds, like if anything grabs onto their feathers, they'll just shed it away. Like, ah, fuck that, I'm, I'm flying away. And speaking of their flying, morning doves, and really all doves in general, have proportionally large wings. This allows them to very quickly launch up into the air from the ground where they feed to escape potential predators. To support these large, powerful wings, they have large pectoral muscles. These muscles are especially evident when morning doves are perched. It looks like they're puffing out their chest like they're a bodybuilder or something. I mean, if you look at them, you can even see like how well-defined their pecs are. Like They literally almost have like a, a reverse heart shape on their chest from just these massive pecs to fly up from the ground. But this is also a reason why they are popular game birds for hunting. I mean, that pigeon breast is good eating. Not all interactions between morning doves and humans is just hunting and bad for them, though. Um, they've actually benefited a lot from the alterations to the landscape that humans have made to North America in the past few hundred years. Morning doves do best in fragmented landscapes with open fields for feeding and then patches of forest for roosting and breeding. And this is pretty much, you know, exactly what we've created with farms and with suburbs. Studies have shown suburban and urbanized landscapes seem to benefit morning doves. But there is a point where urbanization becomes too much. High densities of buildings, pavement, and pedestrians can scare them away. Um, they much prefer office parks, residential neighborhoods, and golf courses. Uh, a study out of Texas A&M showed that morning dove nests that were closer to densely packed buildings had lower success rates than those removed from buildings. So it's not just that they don't like these areas, they don't breed very well if it's too urbanized. But lucky for morning doves, there's plenty of suburbia in America to support their populations. Are the most populous bird in North America. There's an estimated 120 million breeding pairs. This population has declined by an estimated 15% in the past 50 years. Unclear why, I really couldn't find any, like, one answer on what exactly was happening. And it depends on where you look. Like, some local populations are declining while others are fine. Of course, these birds are hunted, so I'll get into that. Um, one thing I did see is that in the southwest, um, population densities of morning doves are lower in heavily grazed lands than in moderate or lightly grazed land. So overuse of land may be a contributing factor to uh, decrease in population in the American southwest. There are a ton of local studies on morning dove populations. It, it's actually pretty crazy. Almost every state um, has a study, you know, even sometimes just different regions in a state have studies about how the morning dove population is doing. And the reason for that is because they're hunted pretty extensively. 20 million morning doves are harvested each year. As far as what I could tell from the studies, the consensus is that it seems to be sustainable hunting. Um, as recently as 2019, uh, I read this massive study that was conducted out of the University of Missouri. 
uh, to evaluate if morning dove hunting negatively affected nestling survival. Um, the results suggested that there's limited or no impact made by hunting to morning dove populations. Um, but of course, they advise to continue monitoring uh, pretty much yearly. So, you know, we'll see how the populations do. But I mean, 20 million, that's a ton of birds harvested. But I don't know. I see morning doves everywhere. But I think people probably said that about passenger pigeons, too. And, and look what happened to them. The popularity of hunting morning doves has actually gone up in more recent years. Um, and this is kind of for a bad reason. It's because other popular game birds like grouse and bobwhite are pretty much experiencing like population crashes and dying out. And so hunters are having to turn to morning doves instead. They are reportedly very tasty. Um, Audubon, I love... <laughs> I love and hate how much he killed and ate birds, but um, he always gives good descriptions about what they taste like. And Audubon really liked eating them. He said, their flavor equals that of the snipe and woodcock, which I guess is high praise. However, eating morning doves does come with some risk. Um, remember how I talked earlier that these birds like to eat grit like sand or dirt and small rocks to help them digest their food? Well... Lead shot can seem like pretty good grit um, to a dove, and when they consume it, they not only poison themselves, but also poison anything that eats them, be that human, hawk, or another hungry predator. And this consumption of lead, um, it's already a recognized problem with waterfowl um, and has resulted in the banning of lead shot when waterfowl hunting. Um, from what I was reading, I think that happened as recently as George Bush signed a, a, a law for that, that banned um lead in waterfowl hunting, um, but no such law exists right now for dove hunting. I did read a study that showed that steel shot works just as well as lead for dove hunting. Like, they were, you know, checking, like, how well it killed the dove, how, you know, the, the, uh, the accuracy, like, every single thing, just trying to convince hunters, like, please stop using lead. It's just as good. Steel is just as good. Um, so come on, like, I think it's time we just ban lead bullets outright, like, uh, we're poisoning our world. This lead poisoning may also be contributing to the dove population decline. Just to illustrate what a pervasive problem it is, in one study out of Maryland, 62 livers from doves collected by hunters were examined. Of these, 40 contained significant amounts of lead. So that's a very small sample size, but I mean, that's two-thirds of birds collected having signs of lead poisoning. If you multiply that by like 20 million morning doves harvested each year, it's possible that hunters are consuming 13 million lead-poisoned doves each year. Another potential poison for morning doves is PCBs. I've talked about PCBs a lot on the show. Uh, pretty much any time I talk about an aquatic species, it usually pops up. Um, PCB and DDT are two chemicals that wrecked havoc on birds in the 20th century before finally being banned. PCB stands for polychlorinated biphenyl. It was a common additive to oil, electrical equipment, and plastics. A study that fed PCB to morning doves and observed their mating behavior found that it negatively affected their ability to breed, especially with females. Morning dove pairs were observed spending significantly more time in courtship despite having lower reproductive rates. 
I, I felt so bad reading this paper for the morning doves. Like they kind of reminded me of like, I don't know, you know, a couple that really wants to have a baby. And like, that's what these morning doves were doing. Just like trying so hard, like engaging in so much courtship behavior, hoping that like somehow they'd be able to have a baby, even though these chemicals were making them infertile. So I've quoted a lot of studies um, in this show that observed morning doves in laboratory settings. And this is because they do really well being hand-reared. Um, they adapt really well to, you know, people raising them in, like, captivity, and they'll still have babies and everything. Um, so this has helped with studying them, with, uh, with raising them. Inevitably, though, um, when you have these birds hand-reared in a laboratory, some of them will die while being handled. I did find a bizarre paper from the 1960s that where one researcher got fed up with doves dying on him and came up with a technique for dove CPR. He instructs you to place the bird on a flat surface, use your thumb and index finger to pry open its mouth, and then give it some rescue breaths. He reported an 80% success rate with this bird CPR. I don't know, if I find a random wild bird down on the ground, I don't know if I'm going to give it mouth-to-bill resuscitation. So let's wrap up talking about some predators, parasites, and diseases of morning doves. As I mentioned at the top of the show, morning doves are preyed upon by a wide variety of predators. Squirrels and blue jays will raid the nest for eggs and squabs. Um, hawks and falcons love taking the squabs and will also take the adults too. Pretty much everything that likes meat will eat a plump little morning dove. I also read a significant amount of eggs and nestlings die from exposure um, in extreme weather or from being blown out of whatever raised surface that the doves are nesting on. I guess that's kind of the trade-off you take when your nest only takes days to build. However, you know, the parents will try to, like, uh, fool predators away from their nest. Um, they will employ a broken wing ruse to try and distract potential predators from the nest. Uh, like uh, killdeer are famous for doing this. Basically, when a predator approaches the nest and looks like it's either coming after the babies or the eggs, the parent will fly away from the nest, land on the ground, and act like it has a broken wing. And then the predator is like, well, I'd rather eat the big old parent than a little egg. Let me go get that. And then it'll kind of lure the predator away and then eventually drop the act and fly away. They are a victim of brood parasites. Um, I saw accounts of yellow-billed cuckoos um, brood parasitizing warning doves. And yeah, like I've mentioned, they have a really high mortality rate. <laughs> Everything loves to eat warning doves. Uh, this is especially prevalent in the nestling and juvenile birds. I found numbers anywhere from 50 to 70% of morning doves die each year. You know, this isn't all from predation. Some is, you know, just from exposure, starvation. Um, the numbers, though, even might be higher than that. Uh, I saw one study out of Missouri where almost 900 doves were implanted with subcutaneous tracking devices in the spring. These birds varied in age from nestlings to adults, and the results were pretty disheartening. Honestly, when you look at the death rates in these birds, it's a wonder that they exist at all. Um, I guess they're just able to reproduce so much they keep up with it. Barely any of the nestlings that were tagged made it through the summer. Just like 1 in 10 nestlings survived 120 days after being captured and tagged. For fledgling and adult birds, it was a little bit better, but not by much. 
At the 120-day mark, survival rate for fledgling and adult birds hovered around 25%. That means only one in four doves avoided being eaten by a predator, shot by a hunter, or dying, you know, from some other calamity. But get this, though, and this is like a fact that just totally blows my mind. The oldest known mourning dove was a male from Florida that was at least 30 years, four months old when he was finally shot by a hunter. Like, that's insane. These birds have like, you know, at best a 50% survival rate each year. And this dude freaking for 30 years was just defying all odds. I wonder like if he just flew in front of that shotgun. Like he was like 30 years, like I'm out. I am done, you know, running away from hawks. Just take me Lord. (laughs) Um, There's some pretty significant parasites that uh, infect mourning doves. Uh, Trichomoniasis gallinae is a big one. So this is a protozoan disease, especially common in doves and pigeons. Um, other birds can get it too, though, and it, it can really wreak havoc. It's a, it's a terrible disease, and it can be spread by dirty feeders. Uh, I talk about it, I think, in a couple of my episodes, my What's in Your Bird Seed episode, my episode I do with um, uh, the veterinarian. Um, we talk about, you know, cleaning your feeders, cleaning your feeders, because you want to prevent trichomoniasis from infecting birds. Uh, trichomoniasis is like a pretty nasty disease. Um, a different species, not the gallinae that infects birds, um, a different species uh, can also cause STDs in humans. But this disease will sometimes flare up in local populations of birds and become really detrimental. Uh, what it does is this protozoa um, infects the throat of birds, um, and in doves it'll form these lesions that uh, prevent them from eating. Remember those white-winged doves I mentioned earlier, the ones that, you know, are usually only found in the southwest, but some of them got introduced in Florida? A study of white-winged doves in Florida found that they are infected by trichomoniasis also, uh, along with mourning doves, but at a much higher rate. And this is worrying because they could serve as reservoirs for the disease and spread it to more mourning doves or to other bird species and cause more outbreaks. And that is why invasive species suck. (laughs) There's also a blood parasite called Hemoproteus that it seems to be very widespread in mourning doves. One study in Arizona found 80% of captured mourning doves were infected with it. They're also known to be affected by avian pox, a really devastating disease uh, that is related to smallpox um, and affects mourning doves. They can also be infected by Salmonella typhimurium, a bacteria similar to the one that causes typhoid fever in humans. So, you know, all birds get diseases, they have parasites. Uh, From what I was seeing, doves and pigeons just in general seem to kind of harbor that kind of stuff a little bit more. Um, And just to kind of summarize this episode, I mean, you know, their populations are doing great, you know, we hunt them in the millions. But definitely some stuff to still watch out um, for these birds. Uh, you know, we want to keep them around. Uh, hell, they're the most numerous bird. Let's let's not let them go the way of the passenger pigeon. Well, that wraps up everything for me, you guys. Um, I had a lot of fun with this episode. Thank you to everyone who suggests episodes for me. If you're thinking of a bird that you just want to know about in deep, deep detail, let me know. You know, I got... Free stickers, folks. Reach out to me if you want them and spread the dirty bird love. 
keep listening, keep writing in. I appreciate all y'all out there in Dirty Bird Land. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening.